the book of Ruth. We have been doing a verse-by-verse study through the book, and uh, we will conclude that study this evening. Come to our final verses at the end of this captivating book. Ruth, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 22. Ruth chapter 4, verse 14 through 22. Well, as you're turning there, imagine that you and several hundred people long ago have been shipwrecked on a deserted, cold, uninhabitable island, and you're all about to freeze to death. Uh, There is some wood and deadfall. You start to gather it to build a fire. And your hands are numb and you're piling it high with your, with your, with your numb hands, piling it high to build a huge fire, hopefully, to, to stay warm and, and survive. And you look around, who has the matches? You all look shivering, searching through your soaking, wet, freezing cold pockets and nothing. And then wait, one guy. One guy finds an old matchbook crammed down in his cold pocket and there's one match remaining. And it needs to count. One match to light a fire to revive and keep alive those hundreds of stranded individuals. He strikes it and like all matches, it burns bright for a moment, but then it starts to fade, and that little orange circle gets smaller and smaller, and the wind's blowing, and it flickers, and you've seen this on matches, you're trying to keep it lit, and it's smoldering, the flame shrinks and shrinks until it's this microscopic little orange spot. All seems lost. But while the lump of despair is still in everyone's gut, that little orange spot gets a little bigger. And it reappears and it gets larger and larger. And the rest of the match is a flame. The match is held steadily. And with the other hand, he, he cups it around it, steady, lowers it to the, just some of the, the dry straw and the deadfall. And it catches while the wind is still blowing and one piece of flaming straw catches another one and another one and another one. Pretty soon some sticks, pretty soon some logs. And soon you have a massive fire ablaze and there's hope. Everyone's going to be okay. Everyone is going to be warm and dry out and survive. In our study... Of the book of Ruth these past several weeks, when our, we're in our sixth study, uh, it seemed throughout that all was lost in the book. Naomi, the, the main human character, her life and circumstances seemed to flicker and get real dim and to, to flicker out like an old wet match. It seemed like all things were coming to a certain end in her life and in Ruth's life. With her, with her husband's death, the death of her two sons, who were childless, two destitute widows, 
uh, in about you know twelve, eleven hundred ish BC, a harsh time for for destitute widows. They were basically hopeless. They're scavenging with little hope of survival. But by a miracle of God's kindness, the winds of life are blowing their way, and the winds of providence are stoking the fire to keep them alive. And as we finish the book, in these final few verses, we will see that this little flickering flame of light, life and her circumstances, will light a very big fire. A a blazing fire of light. Not only for Naomi, but, but earth. For you and for humanity. To light up the world. A little bit of review of the book of Ruth, if you haven't been with us. This is a fantastic book. It seems like this obscure little four-chapter book, crammed in the dark corners, dusty corners, hopefully not dusty in your Bible by now, dusty corners of the Old Testament. And it shows that this that the Bible is full of treasures. If a little four-chapter narrative is this captivating and life-giving, what, what would the rest of the Old Testament hold? Perhaps we should add a second service like some of our reformers and Puritan fathers to study the Old Testament. What say you? We're off topic. Let's back up just a little bit. In six days, a good, wise, and intelligent holy God created... The universe, bringing obvious order, design, and beauty to all things. But according to him, the most important created thing that he made are his image bearers. Uh, This one race called the human race. Intelligent beings who bear his image, who are created to worship, love, and serve him in all perfection. We are image bearers. All human beings are, regardless of our spiritual uh, religious persuasion, and, and we bear that. And there's nothing we can do to undo that any more than we can undo the stars out in all the galaxy. We're God's property and His creation, and the implications of that are, are massive. God, early on, gave a warning uh, and said, you, you need to stay in, 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 the, in the good sweet spot of worship. And of relationship with me. And that will always work out to your fulfillment. And early humanity committed moral and spiritual insanity by rebelling against God. And God was true to his warning. Death resulted spiritual and physical death. Death doesn't exist because of some evolutionary uh, byproduct. It exists because of morally violating God and sin against God. That's why death exists. It's an unnatural thing. God didn't leave it there, though. In Genesis 3.15, we'll put it up here briefly. I mean, while the fruit is still in Adam and Eve's hands, God, God is so gracious, the Lord said to the serpent, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Singular. Seed. He shall. He, singular. This person shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So God says, I'm going to bring this Savior, this seed, who one day will crush ahead of Satan. Much of the Bible thereafter is telling the inerrant, factual story of how God will fulfill this promise in Genesis 3.15. We fast forward many years later to Abraham, circa 2000-ish BC. Not a worshiper of the true God, he's a pagan. God calls him, like Ruth, to leave all that's familiar. Go to this land that would be Israel. 
Because from Abraham and Sarah, impossible circumstances it seemed like, they were barren. God's going to make a nation. This nation, of course, becomes the Jews. There was nothing special about Abraham and Sarah. They were just chosen by God. God made it happen. Fast forward to about 1800s-ish B.C., and this still small nation, Israel, is going to be protected from severe famine in the Middle East. They're brought into the, the powerhouse of a nation, Egypt at the time. Fast forward to 1500-ish B.C., they're very oppressed. You want to talk about oppression, read about their history there. God shows them great grace. He redeems them as a people out of slavery in 1446 B.C., and, and, he, and he treasures this people, Israel, not because they're like treasure-ish in their demeanor, but because God is a great God. And, and he gives them great privilege. He gave to them privilege that was not to be abused. It was not to result in nationalistic or, 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 or religious pride. Though it did, quite the opposite. And after the Exodus, God says, he, he makes this covenant. It's called the Mosaic Covenant. We've been talking about this a little bit. It's recorded in, uh, among other places, it's sort of reaffirmed in Deuteronomy chapter 28. And he says, there are responsibilities to this great grace and this great privilege that you've received. You, you need to obey me, God says, in light of your redemption. And if you don't, there's going to be like economic, agricultural, uh, personal, uh, political, military catastrophe. If you don't, there won't. There'll be the, the polar opposite. Fast forward a few hundred years to what's called the time of the judges recorded in the book of Judges, which immediately precedes the book of Ruth. Ruth takes place in the book of Judges. Israel has totally abused their privileges and become a, a high-minded and, and arrogant people indifferent to their grace that they've received doing what's right. It was at a time of such insanity that people actually believed that truth and morality was relative. And we see the consequences of it in the book of Judges. Total moral spiritual carnage, as will always be the case in a society which believes such unfortunate things. So God is faithful to his covenant. There's famine in the land. That's how the book of Ruth starts. And so this, this family, this little family that Ruth focuses uh, on, uh, this gentleman, uh, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, and their two Israeli sons, they move out of Moab, they move to Moab out of Israel. They were not supposed to do that. The husband dies, the two sons die. And these were direct consequences of disobedience to God and the Mosaic covenant to their spiritual and their national privilege. And so they are destitute. And there is this one widow, Ruth, who is a Moabite, a worshiper of Chemosh. It was, it was a, a terrible religion of the day, child sacrifice, all kinds of other things. And she says, Naomi, I'll go back with you to Israel. We hear that God has ended the famine. So she, she does an unthinkable thing of the day. Leaves the, what would be the social securities of the day in Moab, leaves her village, her family, all that's familiar. Go, hooks up with, with Naomi, a, 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 another widow. That would be a total risk says, I'll go back to your land and your God will be my God. She gets converted to the true God. He unites with the true people of God, as is always the case when someone becomes a believer. And Ruth says, I don't know what I'm going to do. I guess I'll go scavenge. It's the harvest time. I'll scavenge the, these gleaning laws in Israel. She happens in the sovereignty of God to come across the field of uh, a guy who was a believer, which was rare in the time of Judges. 
He takes her under his wing, says he can scavenge her for the rest of the harvest, about two months. But what are they going to do at the end of the harvest? Naomi says, you need to overcome Boaz's girlfriend, Inertia. She proposes to him in a very fascinating scene in Ruth chapter 3. He says, yes, there was this other redeemer that sort of had priority on Naomi's land and Ruth. And he declines. Remember, remember what was his name? What's his face? We saw last week. The Hebrew puts that in there. The Hebrew says his name is what's his face. He's nameless because of his lack of compassion on Ruth. It works out very well in the sovereignty of God. Ruth gets Boaz as a husband. Naomi gets redeemed her land by Boaz. Such kindness of God. And God brings a child. God brings a child to continue the name of Elimelech, deceased Elimelech, and then Naomi's sons, Malon and Kilion. And, and, and so here we are at the end of Ruth. Here we are at the end of Ruth. Verse 14 to 22, still to go. Big idea of the text is this. It's in your bulletin. We'll just, what are we going to see in verses 14 to 22? God brings about the Davidic and Messianic line through the seemingly insignificant lives and suffering in Ruth and Naomi to show his grace on sinners, on sinful humanity, you could say. That God brings about the Davidic and Messianic line through the seemingly insignificant lives and suffering of Ruth and Naomi to show his grace on sinners. We will study the verse, the, excuse me, the rest of the chapter, verse by verse, verse 14 to 22, and kind of let, let the text speak for itself. The text can be divided into three sections. The first section is this. God blesses Naomi through a son. God blesses Naomi through a son. Second, we'll see God blesses Israel through a son. And third, we'll see God blesses the world through a son. But first, verse 14 to 17, God blesses Naomi through a son. So these otherwise helpless scavenging widows in a harsh ancient East society are provided for by Boaz and the providence of God. About a year has passed since the time Ruth and Naomi come back to Bethlehem. That's where it takes place. And the birth of this son to Ruth. About a year. And so here we are in verse 14. Look there with me. Let's get into the text. God's word says, Then the women... Now let's start in verse 13 and get a little momentum. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and Yahweh enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is Yahweh who has not left you without a redeemer today. And may his name become famous in Israel. These, the women, who, what women? These are the ladies who greeted Naomi. Recall, when she returned in her rags, as it were, to Bethlehem a year earlier in that painful conversation. Turn back to chapter 1, the end of chapter 1 really quick. That very painful conversation in chapter 1, verse 19. She, she's come back because she heard the famine and it is over. It was God's kindness. And they both went until they came to Bethlehem, which means in Hebrew, the house of bread. When they came to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred and the women said, is this Naomi? And she said, don't call me Naomi. Here in, in, in Hebrew, her name means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, 
But Yahweh's brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi since Yahweh's witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? She's bitter. Still clinging to her faith. We studied that. But she's bitter and empty. Afflicted, despair. Feels like God is against her. Have you been there? Some great stuff to learn in Ruth, if you have. God is not against her, emphatically not against her, as the book of Ruth and the providence of God is demonstrated, as with all God's children. The Lord is emphatically never against them and is always for them, regardless if we can perceive that with our feelings. Maybe God doesn't want us to feel that with our feelings, that we would walk by faith. Now the townswomen address Naomi. They don't address Ruth or Boaz there in verse 14. Notice that. They want to first speak of God, not the baby. This is about God. They are, they are quick to encourage the suffering, suffering widow in verse 14. Blessed be Yahweh. They understand that God is sovereign. God orchestrated this. He, he brought this kindness because he's not against her. There is, there's been purpose in every instance of her felt suffering, as there is in all suffering for, for God's people. There's, there's always purpose. It's never just a chaotic careening of moral carnage. He has filled her. And her cup is overflowing now. He hasn't left her without a redeemer, and may his name become famous. This is referring to Naomi's new grandson, not Boaz, if you follow the pronouns, notice in verse 15, to the end of verse 15, he uh, has given birth to him. She's given birth to him, speaking of this new baby boy, Naomi's grandson. In what sense will he become a redeemer? We'll see that in a minute. And the ladies pray, may his name become famous in Israel. We'll see if and how that prayer is answered. Verse 15, notice there, may he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age a restorer of, the Hebrew reads, a restorer of soul and a provider for your gray hair is what it says, literally. Restorer of soul. Interestingly, this exact phrase is used in Psalm 23 by an individual that may or may not be significant. David, when he wrote, God, the Lord restores my soul. So this baby boy would be used of God to ensure that Naomi finishes life full and restored. End of verse 15. Your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. A remarkable statement, especially in an ancient East patriarchal society. Seven, a, a number of completion in Hebrew thinking. Seven sons would have been a massive blessing in a day in an agricultural society without social security. And even so, notice this. Let's camp here for a minute. This one woman, Ruth, is considered better than seven competent men, seven sons, an amazing statement. Ruth, formerly an outcast Moabite, under the nation and worship of Chemosh, a widow. That would be considered a double throwaway, doubly worthless in that day. And yet she lives a life that a group of any given seven men would have not likely have lived throwing herself on God for salvation. Not crying that life is unfair. She never cries. Isn't that remarkable? She never once cries, this is unfair. This is misogyny. 
I, I, I want my rights. She just serves hard and trusts God. She knows she's a sinner and that God is gracious. She's worth seven men. And, and, and by the way, this speaks to the Bible's high view of women. There is no higher view of women in the, in the universe than, what the, than the God of the Bible. Notwithstanding some of the things that the Bible records, not that it endorses some of these things. Finally, Ruth is thought to be the excellent wife described in Proverbs 31. The, the remarkable book of Proverbs ends memorializing her that way. And ironically, Ruth has become one of the most exemplary believers in the Old Testament who, who showed what it meant to embody the two most important commands in, in Hebrew society, in the Old Testament commands. What were those two most important commands? Deuteronomy 6.5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Ruth the Moabite has, has shown how to do that. Daniel Block writes this appropriately, quote, Moses instructed Israel to love foreigners as they love themselves. Ironically, it is this foreigner from Moab who shows Israel what this means. Verse 16, Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. Can feel the joy there of, of Naomi. If you've, if you've traveled with her through her bitterness, you can feel her joy. Again, the focus is on the restoration of Naomi. She became his nurse, not a medical way, just simply that Ruth wanted Naomi to play a major role in upbringing the baby boy. And every day, the simple presence of this baby boy preached the kindness of God every second in Naomi's life. What things, not are there things, but what things preach the kindness of God in your life every day to you? Verse 17, the neighbor women gave him a name. That's interesting. Those of you uh, who have had children lately, the day after the birth, did you go, hey neighbor, would you name my baby? It's an unusual practice and but I think it speaks to the community idea here of true believers. Not that we have to practice this or whatever, but just that you can identify God's people by their sincere transparency with one another. Their sharing of life. They're not closed, but they're open. They're not false, but sincere. They had a different view of privacy and community. They didn't have this approach of, these are my kids and don't you dare tell me what to do with them. What's this? It was this humble, simple love for one another. In verse 17, they say, a son has been born to Naomi. Her name is Naomi again. And notice his name. They named him Obed. Stop right there. His name, Obed. It's very fitting. In Hebrew, the word means like servant or worker. Why would they name him that? Probably because Obed, little Obed is going to take after dad and mom, godly individuals, and be, have this servant's heart. Nothing's, nothing is too low for me to serve. No, no way of service is off limits for me. 
Because God's such a great God, and I've seen this in mom and dad. Would to God, parents, that our, our kids would see that in us. We're not too good to serve in any way. And Obed would be a servant for Naomi in her old age, would work this land that Boaz has redeemed. Take care. Take care of his grandma and his parents. In the meantime, blessed be God. He has solved the immediate problem in Naomi's life, brought the plot full circle. Naomi is full. Ruth is married. Boaz blesses this flickering family. It's a great story. But if we are most impressed and warmed for the, the, the literary quality and the happily ever after resolution in the plot only, then we might have missed God's purpose for the book. There is a far, far greater happily ever after that God wants us to see here. And it might be a little harder to see. Number two, God blesses Israel through a son. God bless, number one, Naomi through a son. God blesses Israel through a son. Look at the end of verse 17. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ha! Huh. No way. This is the part where the, the ancient Israelite reader just leaps off his chair. What? This text is so simple and brief. Jesse, the father of David. Nothing else needs to be said. No other explanation is needed. It's the only, the one and only David, the David, one of the most important individuals in Israel's history, the greatest human king of Israel, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The conqueror of Goliath, one of the good kings, the good king, humanly speaking, the man after God's own heart, and the monarch, the king, whose dynasty remained on the throne of Jerusalem from 1000 BC until the Babylonian exile. He was the king who provided some stability to Israel, an imperfect king, yet a king who modeled for the people what worship is. And, 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 and the critical aspect of worship in repentance. Exhibit A, Psalm 51. Exhibit B, Psalm 32. The importance of repentance in worship. That we do not worship if we don't repent. He showed a reconciliation to God looks like David. So the smoldering flame of Naomi's life would catch indeed. Much more than little Obed in his diapers here. Ruth, the outcast Moabite, happens to be the great-grandmother of King David. That is amazing. God blesses Israel through Ruth and Boaz's son. Likely David knew of Obed, his grandfather. Obed would tell his stories about his dear mom, Ruth. And then Solomon. Solomon would... And others would go on to write the Proverbs, write about Ruth and Moabite in chapter 31. Through these otherwise unknown, obscure, seemingly inconsequential ladies, Ruth and Naomi would come the most beloved king and individual in Israel's human history. But number three, 
So God blesses Israel through a son. Number three, God blesses the world through a son. God blesses the world through a son, verse 18 to 22. God blesses the world through a son. So he's the father of David. Verse 18, now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. This, this seems like a weird ending. Why, why would such a charming story end with the most boring part of the Bible that you all skip over in your quiet time? A genealogy. This is actually the most exciting part of the book, as we'll see and we'll prove to you. Why, why is a genealogy needed, though, if it's already mentioned that Obed is the father of Jesse, the father of David? Who is this Perez, and why begin the genealogy with him? One commentator says, quote, The book of Ruth reaches its goal with this genealogical table. The lack of an heir has been the underlying problem for Naomi, and this short genealogy announces that Naomi's needs have been fulfilled beyond anything that she could have expected. Moreover, the genealogy reminds the reader of the activity of Yahweh, who has been behind the scenes throughout the story. Let's dig into it. We've got to do some history and a little bit of digging. Look at verse 18. Now, these are the generations. Stop right there. Do you recognize that phrase from anywhere in the Bible? Which book? Genesis. The first book of the Bible, right? It's all over the book of Genesis. It's about ten times and marks off ten very important sections in the book of Genesis. Don't miss this. You don't want to, you don't want to miss this. Each time the phrase is used in Genesis, it shows this like significant move forward in God's plan of salvation. Or, or redemption or redemptive history, to put it another way, to solve humanity's greatest problem. So the first time you see it is in Genesis 2, 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And then there's that promise in Genesis 3, 15 that we saw. Some guy is going to come and crush your head, Satan. There will be this Savior. And then things are moving forward in Genesis 5, 1. It says, these are the generations of Adam. And then there's all these people. And then Genesis 6, 9, these are the generations of who? Noah. Then it moves forward. Lots of people. And God doesn't wipe out the earth entirely, almost. But after the flood, Genesis 10, 1, these are the generations of Noah's kids. Very important. Because the human race doesn't end there. And God is good in keeping his grace promise from Genesis 3.15. So you move forward to Genesis 11. The phrase appears again. These are the generations of Terah. Terah is the father of who? Abram or Abraham. Very important. Redemptive history is moving along. The focus of the generations from then on become Abraham. He's the father of the Jews. Fast forward to Genesis 36. These are the generations of Esau the brother of Jacob, because the promised Savior will not come through Esau. We could go to Romans 9 for that. We don't have time. The promised Savior will not come through him. Then Genesis 37, verse 2. These are the generations of Jacob. 
Jacob. Why does this matter? Because he's the grandson of Abraham and the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. I want to show this just graphically very quickly. If a picture may or may not help. You have Adam. Okay, then you have Seth. You have Noah. Then it goes through Shem, then Terah, then Abraham on the right. And then Isaac, who's the chosen one. You have Jacob and Esau, and then through Jacob come the 12 tribes. This is Genesis. Genesis isn't just wasting ink on, you know, begat, 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 begat. It's showing that God is a great God who's going to fulfill exactly what he said at Genesis 3.15. And here's how he's doing it. So when the careful reader of Scripture gets to Ruth 4.18 and sees this phrase, these are the generations, they get goosebumps. Because it's another marker after Genesis. Ruth has a ton of parallels to Genesis showing how God is sovereignly keeping his grace promise to bring a savior. Now, why Perez? Why not Judah, who is one of the, who, who is one of the 12 sons? Why Perez? More on that in a moment. But recall, okay, Judah is one of Jacob's 12 sons. Judah one of the 12 tribes of Israel. However, Judah's lineage is threatened for a time because two of his sons, Ur and Onan, they die. Tamar, one of his son's widows, had a child, Perez, through one of the most scandalous and infamous Leverite marriage situations in the Bible. God uses human sin to bring about good. Through Judah, Perez is born to Tamar, Perez becomes the father of Hezron, Ruth 4.18, and then Ram, and then Aminadab. Aminadab, you recognize that name? He's Aaron's Aaron. Remember Moses' brother, Aaron, father-in-law? And it goes on to Boaz, Obed, Jesse, David. Why does it end at David? Because Ruth was written in Old Testament times to show the sovereignty of God in bringing about the Davidic line. And to say, look what God did. He's still in control, even though it seems like things are crazy. Here's where we are in salvation history. Now, back to Judah for a minute, who's the father of Perez. Perez, again, where it starts in Genesis, excuse me, in Revelation 4.18. Perez. Remember something remarkable that was said about Judah. The father of Perez. We'll put it up here, Genesis 49. You know, this is circa 1800-ish BC. Jacob, on his deathbed, prophesies this of one of his sons, Judah. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouches a lion and is a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And watch this statement. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Huh, that's interesting. The scepter, the, the rule will never depart from him. From Judah's line. So, now recall, David is in the line of Perez, as the genealogy shows, and Judah. But we're still waiting for this promised seed savior. It's not Judah. Now, the genealogy reminds us of something else. We'll return to this. The genealogy reminds us, reminds us that people were born, and people were born to people who were born, and people were born to those people, but the people died. 
Genealogy reminds us that people died. People were died to the people who were born. And they died and they died. All these people on this list are dead. Ten generations from Perez to David, they're all dead. Genealogies tell the story of life and death. Therefore, they tell the story of the greatest human problem, the greatest human enemy, death. We die. You and I, we will all die. We will one day soon be merely a name in a genealogy. So genealogies in general preach to us that we need a solution to death. A redeemer from something worse than loneliness and, and poverty. We need a redeemer from the great enemy of death. Death, of course, is not a thing in itself. Death is the consequence, as we talked about, of sin. That's why death exists. And so genealogies implicitly say loudly, the human race is sinful. And, 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 and we'll all get so swallowed up by sin's voraciously hungry child, death, and so we need a redeemer. And then there's the book of Ruth. This tear-jerking, nail-biting, charming story ends with David. 2 Samuel 7.12 There's a lot of hope in David's name this side. God through Nathan says to David, when your days are complete, you'll lie down with your fathers. I'll raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Whoa. So through David, there'll be a like a forever guy, which means a guy that ends genealogies as far as death is concerned. Okay, so the promised Savior from Genesis 3 isn't going to be David, but then we have this from Isaiah 9, a little Christmas passage. A child will be born to us. Wonderful counselor, go to verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So, the dominating question in the minds of Old Testament believers is this. Who is this going to be? It's been narrowed from the seed from the woman, from Eve, to somebody from Abraham, to somebody from Judah, now from somebody from David. And when he arrives 2,000 years after Abraham, 1,000 after David, the New Testament writers are very careful to prove that it's him. Matthew 1, 6, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Notice the phrase, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew knew about Ruth. And here's all the generations. Verse 3, Judah was the father of Perez, Tamar, Hezron, Ram, Minadab, Nashon. Again, this is written by Matthew like 1,200 years after Ruth. And Matthew it was just a, a tax collector guy. Verse 5, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Ruth, Jesse, David, and so from the line of Ruth, Boaz, and David would come this greater David and this greater Redeemer, one far greater than Boaz, the Lord Jesus Christ. And remember that Judah was likened to a lion. Revelation 5, 
John says, this is, you know, almost like, this is like 80-ish, 90-ish AD. I began to weep great, greatly. He sees a scene of heaven because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. Verse 5, and one of the elders said to me, this is in heaven, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Yes. The root of David has overcome, so as to open the book and its seven seals. The lion of Judah is so important because that guy would always have the rule. Always have the scepter. He's the root of David. And so while genealogies implicitly and generally tell us the bad news of sin and death, Ruth's genealogy here from Perez down to David solves the problem and tells us explicitly, specifically the great news of redemption in life. Through Ruth's line comes David. Through David, the greater David. Jesus is the seed and the promised Savior of Genesis 3.15. He lived the perfect, flawless life, demonstrating he's fully God, fully man. He healed quadriplegics. He welcomed the most wicked and sinful. He stopped storms. He fulfilled all the prophecies. He rose people, raised people from the dead. He himself raised from the dead. He died in our place for sin. And in doing so, this son of Ruth makes redemption for the people. He's the great redeemer, far greater than land or money, a redemption from the slavery of sin. Christ is the great redeemer, the lion from the tribe of Judah. We access that redemption simply by faith, not by working up a moral resume to impress God enough, but quite the contrary, falling down before him in childlike faith, trusting that his death, his life, his resurrection accomplishes 100% our redemption, that we couldn't do anything. And so this flame of redemption and redemptive history flickered and got super dim, super dim in this day, the days of the judges. And it was all a part of God's plan. And God likes it that way. He prefers it that way at times to let the, the, the flame flicker really low because when it fans out and becomes the brightest of light, and what from Naomi? This happened? What? The only explanation will be God's glory and God's greatness and the God of the Bible and his majesty and his supremacy and his sovereignty and his mercy. It's amazing that Christ has come. Ruth, the book of Ruth, serves to further the story of God's redemption through his son. It all began in Genesis 3.15. Of course, it began in eternity past. God blesses the world through his son. What seemed to be a random story of famine, loss, and suffering proved to be the story of a faithful God using unfaithful humanity, broken humanity, Uh, through loss and through suffering to bring about his perfect plan of redemption through the God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So this genealogy in verse 18 to 22 is the crescendo and, and the praise the Lord and to get excited in your heart to serve and love God. It's the crescendo of Ruth and the genealogy represents 
the reason why the story of Ruth should be in the Bible. It, sh- it really doesn't need to be in the Bible without the genealogy. Oh, but with the genealogy, big time it's in there. So, a couple of t- final takeaways from the book of Ruth and what we've seen here in chapter 4. A couple of so what, some takeaways. Number one, though suffering is inevitable, God uses it for good. We can't say this enough. Though suffering is inevitable, God uses it for good. We've seen this in the small details of Ruth, now in the crescendo it brings to David and the greater David. This is not to say that every form of suffering is good, not at all, but it is to say that suffering and the hard things in your life are not without purpose. But in the end, it will be, sh- be shown of God to be used for good. Always. Number two. We learn this too. Number two, that the good redemptive work, like the saving plan of God, doing all the stuff he said he's going to do, it takes a while. <laughs> You're going to have to have patience. That the good redemptive work of God takes a while. I mean, from the time God says that to Eve in Genesis 3.15, how long is that? Until you know Genesis 12 and God says, okay, Abraham, through you I'm going to bring this promise. Uh, I don't know, millennia? And then Abraham to Judah. That's a while. You know, and then, and then, and then Judah to Ruth. That's a while. From Perez to David, that's like 700 years. And from David to Christ is another thousand. And from Christ to now is another 2,000. God God is not breaking a sweat at all. He's not wearing a path in the throne room of heaven wondering what he's going to do. It's all his timing. And so we shouldn't be discouraged that redemption takes time. The arrival of his kingdom takes time. Christ's second coming, it's going to happen. It just takes time. But to be patient. Don't worry, it'll happen. Number three, even when it seems like all is lost, God is flawlessly moving everything to a very good end. That's what the story of Ruth shows us. That even when it seems like all is lost. Have you felt like that in life? That's just, it it couldn't possibly get worse. Even when it seems like all is lost, God, there's a great God who's flawlessly moving everything to a very good end. Think about how dire the circumstances were in in the book of Ruth. It's chapter one, verse one, the days of judges. Just your heart sinks. No. And then famine and then death. And then the two sons take Moabite wives and they die and these two, these two widows. And then it seems like Ruth isn't going to get the husband. The flame is dying. And then boom, David. The greater David. God's got it. He's so sovereign over history. Look what he did. 
You need to praise the Lord for that. You need to give your life to him and serve him because of that. Because of this genealogy in Ruth. He's got it. And it's going to a very good end. Fourth. Briefly. Fourth, God cares about the details in the lives of his people. God cares about, uh, we could add there, the seemingly insignificant. God cares about the seemingly insignificant details in the lives of his people. Uh, How do we get that? Because Naomi, at times, she's bitter. She probably thinks God forgot about her. God's too big or too angry to care about her and her And as an obscure nobody widow, but he's watching over her the whole time. He's in control. He's working it all for good. He's sovereign over every detail and he cares. He blesses her beyond what she could ever imagine. Fifth, our imperfections and suffering. There's going to be seven of these, by the way. I should have told you that. Fifth, our imperfections and suffering will never derail God's plan of redemption. Like, like, like Christ returning, God, who's God's going to save, the kingdom of heaven, it'll never derail. Yeah, our sin has consequences, it's not going to wreck God's plan. I mean, Ruth is such an illustration, now. there's so much carnage. And that didn't seem like detrimental to God's plan, but essential to God's plan. You're like the stuff that happens to you and the stuff that you go through, it's not going to derail God's plan. It'll just serve it. Number six, God's plan of redemption in Christ is the main thing happening in the universe. It's not just some like obscure, you know, conservative religion. This is the thing happening in the universe. Above all, that's what Ruth, Ruth shows that. That it started in Genesis 3 and then God shows the, this winding genealogies. It's the main thing. It ends in Christ. And it's going to end in his kingdom. It's the main thing. And if you are not about and a part of God's plan for redemption by faith in Christ, then you're not about the right thing. You're about throwaway stuff. Number seven and finally, God's plan of redemption is one of great, great grace upon sinners. God's plan of redemption, the book of Ruth shows, is about, it's one of God's great grace upon sinners. Why start with the genealogy? Why start with Perez? This is why. Why not start with Judah? This is why. Because Perez was born through total scandal and human sin. It would be a shocking reminder that God is a God of incredible grace who extends forgiveness to wretched people. And he'll use them for his glory. And isn't that the case of the whole genealogy? I mean, Ruth, a Moabite, a worshiper of Chemosh. And let's throw Matthew 1 up there to be reminded. Talk about grace. Go down to verse 5 there. I mean, Abraham, they can just go there. Human. You can just put a human up there. But go to verse 5. Salmon is the father of Boaz. And Matthew says, oh, I don't want you to remember that this was by Rahab. Who's Rahab? A prostitute from Jericho. 
Remember that in Joshua chapter 2? God says, I'm going to throw that in there just so you know how merciful I am to sinners. And then, you know, Boaz is the father of Obed by Ruth and Jesse and David. And David says, oh yeah, by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Don't miss that detail. By God's design, he has chosen to not sanitize the genealogy of the most important individual in the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's chosen quite the opposite. You have prostitutes. You have Chemosh worshipers. You have David. You have Abraham. You have humans. And even if some of them weren't outwardly wicked, we're all born with rebellious hearts and the ground is flat at the cross. God intentionally chooses and uses, chooses to save the wicked because that's all there are in the universe. And if you're not wicked, you can't go to heaven. That's how it works. So it is with the church today. The true church is not a club of who's who among American conservative morality. Uh, it's not this sort of club where we celebrate, you know, and commemorate our morality. The true church is only full of wretches. And if that offends you, you still need to be saved. Because Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I've only come for sinners. And so God's people are simply those on this side of the cross who have fallen on the gracious and merciful nail-pierced hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater David, and the Lion of the tribe of Judah, and the greater Redeemer. God's plan of redemption is one of great grace on sinners. This is all unqualified people, and that is exactly the point. What do you do to get to heaven? This is what you do. Tell God how utterly unqualified you are for heaven. Fall down, put faith in Jesus, and that's how it works. You don't have to be qualified. You're not qualified. The prerequisite to going to heaven is to declare you're not qualified. That you're right in there with the rest of them. With the Ruths and the, and, and the Rahabs and the Davids and the humans. That you're a human. Because Christ the qualified, through the line of David and through the line of Ruth and Boaz, Christ the qualified would go to the cross after he lived a perfectly qualified life and he would take all of your disqualification and all of your sin and every sin past, present, and future and he would die for it. So that by faith in him alone, not your moral resume, you will be included in the kingdom of of wretches who one day will hear well done good and faithful slave enter into the joy of your master father in heaven we thank you for your great love shown so so wonderfully in the book of Ruth and in every genealogy and in our lives may we worship you give our lives to you in Jesus name Amen.